Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. It's great to see you, and isn't it great to praise Jesus? Good morning, church family that's online. We're thankful that you're with us today. Before we jump into this new series, Love Is, I just want to take a moment. Uh, we had a, uh, a very difficult week as a country. There's some uh, difficult things that took place, and I just want to spend a couple moments acknowledging that, reflecting on that, and uh, reminding us of our focus as a church. And so, as I was thinking about things that happened, and I don't know what your experience was like as you watched the news and, and saw all of those things taking place, I'm reminded of the fact that when Jesus called his followers, he called a unique group of different men to be those 12 disciples that he started with. And I don't know how well you know the Bible or how well you are familiar with the Gospels, but there's one guy, he writes one of the Gospels, his name's Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. And so sometimes you read that and you're like, nobody likes tax collectors. Do you know what the tax collector actually does? A tax collector raises money to fund Rome who leads with oppression over the Jewish people. There's another guy that's in that group, his name is Simon. Not Simon Peter, his name's Simon the Zealot. You see it four different times if you read through the Gospels that he's called Simon the Zealot. A zealot is a political affiliation. Uh, the zealot's goal was to overthrow Roman rule. And so Jesus, when he was calling his disciples, he calls these people of the two exact opposite ends of the political spectrum, puts them together. And if you read through the Gospels, you see he's not trying to convince them to change their political ideas. Instead, what he does is he gives them a different mission. It's an eternal mission. It's not a mission about what was happening in the government in Israel at that time. And I was talking with a friend about it this week, and, and we started, uh, just as we were talking about the Bible and talking about those things, we don't know this for sure, but there's a, a, a passage of Scripture where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, he sends them out two by two, and we said, wouldn't it be funny if he took those two guys and put them together, had them go out and preach the gospel? And I think about where we're at as a country, and I want to make it known, like, I know you've experienced it, but just saying it out loud, do you realize we've just gone through 18 months of people who don't care about you, who do not care about your heart or your soul or what your focus is and your relationship with God, and they spent billions of dollars to make you angry and fearful. And if any of us in this room, myself included, thinks that has not affected you spiritually, you're lying to yourself. And so what I want us to do is we start this sermon series on love, and we talk about loving our neighbor, and we talk about loving our enemy, and we talk about loving our spouse, we talk about loving different people, people that are very different than us, people that are going to disagree with us significantly about issues that really do matter, and I'm not saying like this stuff doesn't matter, it does matter, but it's not eternal. And so as we talk about having an eternal mission, let's start, with, let's start praying. Because it's really easy to be unified when everything's easy, but people don't pay much attention to that. There's one time when we know for sure that Jesus was praying for us in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 17. He prays that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. And how unique is that when you take people that are very different? See, being unified doesn't mean that we're uniform. Being unified is that we've got one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one mission. It's Jesus Christ, and it's making Jesus Christ known. That's why you're still here as a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower and you're here today, uh, we want you to know all about the love that Jesus has for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you of what our mission is. And so let's pray. Let's, I'm going to pray for our country. I'm going to pray for our leaders. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for me. And I'm going to pray for the church in America. We've got a lot of repenting to do as a church. Uh, we've got a lot of things that, that we've gotten distracted by. And uh, we need to get our focus back on Jesus. I think maybe God's weeding out some folks in the church. He's going to make us stronger. And so let's pray for that. Father, I pray 
I don't, I don't want to pretend to know all the issues that are happening in hearts and minds of the people that are in our church or in the church, but I know that you know, and I know you care, and I pray that you do something supernatural as we gather in your name to remind us of your name, to remind us that you are the King of Kings, you are the Lord of Lords, and it doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's on any uh, seat in Russia or in China or in North Korea, that you rule and you are sovereign and you reign, but you care about those people. I pray you'd change lives of people that are in office while they're there. They may be diametrically opposed, diabolically opposed to you. And uh, you can transform their hearts. You can save them and, and make them different. I pray you'd give us a leader who would lead us in repentance as a country. That we've gone after power. We've gone after money. We've gone after prestige. We've gone after sensual pleasures. And we've forsaken you. And God, will you bring us back to you? And the church is not that much different. I don't know all the sins. I'm not going to pretend to know all the sins of all the churches in America. But Father, I pray that we would repent. I pray that we would turn to you. And I pray that you would be our North Star, that you would be our laser focus. And that when people see us, they would see your son Jesus. God, I pray that your, your unity would, would reach into this place, would reach into living rooms right now, would reach into uh, different churches. Or I pray for other churches in our city. I pray that our churches would be unified in the gospel. We wouldn't be competing against each other, but we'd be working together to reach this community for you. That one day we'd stand before you and be the people that we want to you that would be our joy and our crown. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I am pumped about this series, and as I came in this morning, uh, our tech team was getting things ready. The lights weren't working. Things weren't happening. Just so you know, the tech team comes in a couple hours before any of you probably are even awake, and especially the 11 o'clock service, right? <laughs> Not that you're all, like, no, anyway, but whatever. I get myself in trouble here. Um, but they're in here, and so I just want to, let's give them a hand. Let's thank the tech team. Would you? They're doing sound and lights. They're, they've done so many pivots in this season. There's so many people that are at home still that are part of our church and they love our church, but they're, they're not able to join us at this point. It's because of the tech team that we're able to engage with them. So we are thankful. Almost every morning, uh, one of the guys in the tech team, Drake, he's our director, he'll say, are you going to yell this morning? And I'll say, I don't know. Like, if I get excited, maybe. It's not like a planned out yelling. And, and he refers back to an illustration I gave about five or six years ago when I was talking about encouragement and instilling courage in people. And I talked about one of my favorite sports movie scenes. And it's in the movie Remember the Titans. Have you seen the movie Remember the Titans? Most of you, it's been on TV like a bazillion times on a bunch of channels. And, and, and what happens in, in that movie, just the summary of the movie is the star of the, the movie is Denzel Washington. Uh, he's a black coach uh, of a football team that has been integrated in 1971 in Virginia, integrated with white players and black players. It was the first time this had happened for them. They're playing all these other schools that are all white. And uh, while the team has come together in my favorite scene, and they're ready to play together, they're unified, people outside the team don't want them to win. And so there's these guys that are in charge of who gets into the Hall of Fame and who doesn't get in. And they've rigged this football game so that they'll lose and then Denzel can get fired. And the assistant coach who used to be the head coach is a white guy, his name is Coach Yost, that he'll get into the Hall of Fame. And, and what's happening in this game is they're playing is that they keep getting penalties and they're, they're ridiculous penalties. So ridiculous that Coach Yost looks back in the stands, he sees his 10-year-old daughter going, that's not holding, come on, that's a bad call. Like she's upset about it. He sees the guys who've rigged the game just sitting there, no emotions, watching what's happened. He looks over, he's now become friends with Denzel Washington. He's complaining, you're cheating my boys, you're cheating my boys, and he's upset. And so all, the whole scene is focused on Coach Yost. And he looks out at the officials and he doesn't call him, hey, Raph. He says, Titus, calls the guy by the name. He knows him. They know they have a relationship, been years coaching football and refing football. And he walks up to him and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, I know all about it. And before God, you call a fair game. 
or I'll go to the press and you'll all go to jail. I'll go down with you if I have to. And the ref says back to him, you dig your own grave. And he just squeezes his shoulder and goes, okay. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, here we go. And now you're like into it, like, what's gonna happen? And he's called a timeout, so he calls, he says, defense on me. Defense comes together. This is when it gets intense. Okay, the defense comes in. He starts giving them a speech. He says, I don't want them to gain another yard. Like, think about that. Like, you wanna win a game, but not gain another yard. He says, if they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm gonna pull each one of y'all out. One of the guys quits, he gets mad. He's like, forget about him. Brings in another guy. Then he says the line that they always ask me because they want to know if I say it, they don't want the sound system to like blow up. He says, blitz all night. They turned it down. See, I knew they'd do that when I got to that spot. And then he says the line that probably is the signature line for the movie. I want them to remember forever the night that they played the Titans. And then what happens next? They're all pumped, like, guys are, yeah, we're gonna go hit somebody. Like, it's great. I'm grabbing my kids in the living room, throwing them on the couch, like, yeah, I'm gonna hit somebody. And it's easy to miss the next line, but it's the next line that I want you to understand this time. Coach Joe says, leave no doubt. Then a couple minutes later, the game's happening, they've taken the momentum, they're dominating. I think they're winning like 44 to 14 or something at that point. And he looks at, at Coach Herman, Denzel Washington's character, and he says, run it up, leave no doubt. In other words, they might not like us, they might not like our skin color, they might not like our philosophy, they might not like what's happening in our school, but they're not gonna doubt who the better football team is tonight. And why am I thinking about that for this series on love? It's because of this. Because of our vision as a church. So we didn't come here to just plant a church, we came here to reach a community for Jesus Christ. This series is meant to equip you to be able to love your neighbor, your spouse, your enemies, like to love the way that the Bible says to love. The Bible's real clear about it. It says in Ephesians about husbands, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the way we're supposed to love each other within the church, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Love one another, just add, new commandment I give you, love one, how's that a new commandment? The Bible says love one another in the Old Testament. Just as I loved you. And I thought, well, I could jump into a passage like that and preach that to you. We could preach John 3.16. We could go through God's love. But my wonder is, are you experiencing God's love? I'm not asking you, believer, if you believe in God's love. I'm not asking if you believe that for God so loved the world. I'm asking if you're living in the love of God, in the freedom of that love. You don't have to prove anything to him. Are you, are you living an identity of being a loved child of God? Because if not, you can't possibly do what we're then going to tell you to do in this series, to, to apply it. So today, there's not a ton of application, but to ask yourself the foundational question, am I living in God's love? Am I experiencing God's love? Because see, what we should be doing as a church, we want to, our vision is built on Matthew chapter 5. We're supposed to be the salt and light of the world, that non-believers would see our lives and then glorify God who's in heaven. Now think about that. We're going to disagree with the world. If we believe the Bible, we're going to disagree with the world about abortion. We're going to be pro-life. We're going to disagree with the world about marriage. We're going to believe the marriage between one man, one woman, forever in a covenant relationship. We're going to disagree about lots of things. The Bible goes against the world's philosophies, and they're going to disagree with that. They're not going to like that about us, but we should leave no doubt that we love them. And God's left no doubt that he loves us. And we're going to look at that in one verse of Scripture today, Romans chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, just one verse, five truths, one verse. I'm going to read you more than just that verse to give you the context for the passage. As you ask yourself the question, are you living in God's love? Romans chapter 5, start reading verse 5, we'll go through verse 10. 
uh, says this, and hope does not put us to shame. We're in a section of the book of Romans where he's talking about hope. We looked at this actually in our Christmas series. We were in Romans 4. It says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If you've experienced that, that's, that's worth pausing for. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But, and here's the verse, here's where we're going to focus today, but God shows his love for us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from, this is what we're saved from, the wrath of God. So we're saved by his love, from his wrath, for... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amen. What an incredible passage of scripture if you're a follower of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, then this doesn't apply to you. But what's happened in this book is for the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the power of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. That's a, just a word we use in church that means good news. And the good news is that Jesus came, lived a life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve to die, rose from the dead, offers us the gift of life. But the bad news is we've all fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. But whoever places their faith in Jesus, everyone, Jew, Gentile, slave free, male, female, black, white, whatever your backgrounds, whatever your experiences, if you place your faith in Jesus, you're what the Bible's called justified. That means you've been declared righteous even though you're not righteous. That's good news. That's the gospel. But what happens for many believers is they stop there. Like, I became a Christian, like, that's it. Like, and then you just keep reminding yourself of that throughout the rest of your life. But you know what Romans 5 does? It tells us now what? What do I do now? Now that I'm a believer, now what? And Romans chapter 5 tells us about the hope that we have, and it tells us the certainty of the love that fuels that hope. And that's the context of what we're reading here. And in just this one verse, and I want you to think about that when you drive home today, or when you log off today. We only look at one verse today, and we're going to see five truths. There are hundreds of verses about God's love in the Bible. We are not exhaustively saying everything there is to say about God's love, but we see five truths. The first one is this, that God loves you with a pursuing, relentless love, a love that relentlessly pursues you, not only to the point of salvation, but even after. It keeps relentless, the idea that it keeps coming. Think about this for a second. Have you ever been chased? Has anyone ever chased you before? Some of you nod your head and kids maybe play tag. Some of you adults are hesitant to raise your yeah, the police, but I don't want to tell you you're a pastor. Like, whatever. I've been chased before. You think about that? I, I was thinking about it this week. I was sitting in my office, and I remember when I was about 12 years old, I had a wrist rocket. Anybody here have a wrist rocket? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, think slingshot, but way cooler. Wraps around your wrist. It's got a bungee cord on it. You put a pellet in it. You can shoot a you can shoot whatever through it. When I was 12 and I had my wrist rocket, I felt invincible. I remember one time my friend Phil and I we were walking through the woods in this trail, and we were shooting our wrist rockets, just shooting whatever we could through trees. We'd try to shoot squirrels, we couldn't hit them, but we'd try to shoot different things and cans, whatever there was. But we came to this one spot, and I don't recommend this. I don't endorse this. I was a terrible sinner, kids. But through this spot, there was a house that was pretty close to the trail. And we knew it would be wrong to shoot the house, but it seemed like a great compromise to shoot the garage, which is a little bit closer. And so we started shooting this garage, and it had aluminum siding, and we're shooting these pellets. It sounded so cool. Shoot the pellet. It sounded almost like a silencer in a, in a movie, if you're watching. 
And so we're just unloading on this garage. Until, like, out of my peripheral, I see a grown man coming at me. <laughs> I think he owned that house. And all he said was, hey, hey! And I looked. What would you have thought in that moment? I'll tell you what I didn't think. I wonder if he thinks that sound is as cool as I do, and he wants to shoot my wrist rocket. Oh, one word came to mind, and I didn't have to, like, contemplate it. I looked at my friend Phil, and I said, run! And I started running. And I knew in that moment, I didn't have to be faster than the guy chasing us. I just had to be faster than Phil. And so I was running as fast as I could go. And I didn't even look back. I ran out of the woods. I ran to my house. Phil made it out too, but I didn't know in that moment. <laughs> why did I naturally run? Do you know why? Because we're naturally runners. Go back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sin, they go hide. It's God that does the pursuing. Go to the Gospels. In the Gospels, God's the one that comes. God's the one that pursues. He's the only one that shows up for us. We're running. We run in a lot of different ways, just to be clear. Because a lot of us, if you hear this, especially if you've been around church for very long, you think that running just means rebelling against God. Maybe you think of Jonah in the Old Testament. He didn't want to do what God told him to do, and so he went and did his own thing. The Bible says that we all think that we know the right way, and in the end, it leads to death. We all run from God. Some of you run from God because he tells you something you don't want to do and you think you know better than him. Some of you, that's how you ended up in marriages with people that aren't believers. Some of us, how we ended up in business deals that we're doing. Some of us, it's, what, it's the secret stuff that we hope nobody here would ever find out and we're rebelling. You're running from God. Just acknowledge it before him. You don't have to tell me. Just acknowledge it before him in your heart today. But there's a lot of other ways we run from God. Some of us run from God through our questions. We say that instead of rebellion, we call it reason. We think we have questions God can't answer. That's pretty arrogant, by the way. Like, you're how old? 40, 50, 30, 60? You've lived however many years on this earth, and you think infinite, eternal God hasn't heard your question before? And maybe, maybe you've got a question you don't like the answer to. At least be honest about that. You don't like the answer, but it's his answer. And you've got to decide then, are you going to submit to his answer, or are you going to rebel? And many of us rebel. Some of us have other reasons, difficulty that's happened in our life, pain. We run because of our reasons. We run because of our rebellion. And do you know what the one that we oftentimes don't think of? We run because of our religion. We think we've got to prove to God something. We want to be moral. We think we're going to make God love us more. Very legal. I mean, if you have a legalistic background where somehow you thought you had to prove yourself before God. And we're using God to run from God. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're reshaping what the God of the Bible is into the image we want him to be. And it becomes a lot more like all the, every other world religion teaches you that you have to be good enough for God to love you. Christianity doesn't teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches. He teaches that he has a relentless pursuing love for you. It says, while we were sinners, we weren't looking for him. He was looking for us. The way that Jesus says it in the, in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, for the Son of Man came not, he came to seek and save the lost. He was on a search mission. And that's right after Luke chapter 15, where he's given all these illustrations about how God comes after lost things, coins, sheep, a son, prodigal son in that passage. And so you, you can go back to the garden. I told you in the garden, God's the one who did the pursuing. You look through the, the, the prophets, you look through the Psalms, you look through the Proverbs. If you, as you read through the Bible, it's God's always the one coming after us. I was reading a story today. Uh, this morning before first service started in the book of Daniel. I don't know if you've read the book of Daniel. A lot of us think there's only one story in there and it's about some lions in a den. Uh, not like a den where you have books, but like a cave. And uh, 
There's more stories in the book of Daniel, just FYI. There's a lot of great stuff in the Bible we don't really talk about. And uh, there's this, ch- this story in Daniel chapter 10 I was reading. In Daniel chapter 10, what happens is Daniel gets a vision from God, and God sends an angel to tell him what that vision was about, but he doesn't show up for three weeks. Why? Why? Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 tells us why. The angel tells him. Do we have that verse? The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. There was a battle. I was fighting to get to you, Daniel, for three weeks. See, there's stuff that's happening that we don't see. If you think that all that's happening around us are the things that we're seeing right now, you are mistaken. Ephesians tells us we do not battle against flesh and blood but against principalities, angels, demons. There's all kinds of stuff that's taking place in the spiritual realm we're not seeing. And so we can talk about how God comes on a pursuit for you and we see Jesus, we just did the Christmas story, leaves heaven, comes to earth, that's definitely pursuing. What was the spiritual battle in that? Because there's things we see in the story that we can tell something else was happening. Herod, the king, killed, we don't talk about this in the Christmas story, killed all the babies in Bethlehem that were two and under that day. An entire village of people were mourning It wasn't a Christmas celebration. They were mourning their kids had been killed by the king in pursuit of Jesus to try and stop him before he ever even grew up. Before his ministry even starts, he spends 40 days in the wilderness with Satan being tempted by, you don't think there was resistance to him coming after you? I think if we could see all the spiritual battles that took place, it'd be like an action movie of Jesus' pursuit of us. You know, one of the things that I love about action movies is in the chase scene, there's always a chase scene, but in the chase scenes, It's not like it's all of a sudden you start chasing somebody and then, oh, there was an obstacle, I stopped. No, they keep coming. That's why I said this is relentless pursuit. Keeps coming. One of my favorite uh, action movies are the Bourne movies. Have you guys seen those? A couple of you say yes. A couple of you are like, oh, are we allowed to watch movies? I'm at church. Uh, You're a Christian. I'll just tell you about it, okay, since I've seen it. Um, What ends up happening is every movie, Jason Bourne is pursuing his identity. He wants to know who he is. And every movie, he kicks a bunch of butt in the process. I wish Matt Damon would come back. We can figure out a reason, like find a long-lost brother or something. I don't care. Just kick a bunch of butt and try and figure out more about your background, okay? And uh, what ends up happening is he always chases somebody. doesn't matter if it's in a Mini Cooper or a motorcycle, or if he's running through a third floor of an apartment complex, he jumps out of that window into the next building, like it's awesome. And there's always resistance to the pursuit, but he keeps coming. I was watching this week, the, the most recent one, he's in Las Vegas, he's driving a Dodge Charger. Have you seen that one? Those of you who've seen it? Some of you are willing to admit it now that the pastor's seen it? Okay, a couple of you now are shaking your head. You weren't shaking your head before, just FYI, I'm telling on you. He's chasing a Dodge Charger. He's chasing the bad guys in an armored truck. The armored truck is like blazing through cars, just tearing up the whole city. He drives up on a bridge, jumps off the bridge, lands on top of the truck, then they go into a casino, and he keeps coming. It's amazing. Do you think about Jesus coming after you? The spiritual battles that are taking place, we don't even see. They're trying to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. There's resistance. He gets resistance, religious resistance. Those are the people that put him on a cross. He gets resistance from his friends who just don't understand what his mission is. No, 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 not you, Jesus. You're not going to get behind me, Satan. His closest earthly friend is giving me resistance. Your spiritual battle we see taking place in the garden, his pursuit of you is relentless. But I said it's relentless, not just because of what he did to the cross, but what he keeps doing today. He didn't just come after you. He didn't just come after you in the past. He's coming after you. Just so you know, God's coming after you. I don't care if you're a believer or not a believer. God's coming after you. And why do I say that? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This all comes from one verse. Look at what it says. 
But God shows, and if you have a copy of the Bible, you might highlight that if you're using electronic or underline it if you've got a paper Bible. God shows because that's present tense. Not God showed. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, past tense, died for us. He's talking about an event that took place 2,000 years ago, but he says God shows, present tense, his love for us. Why would he do that? I think the answer comes from the context, almost always does in the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. What verse 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love, so okay, now we're talking about God's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That word poured there is used in a Greek tense that means that it happened in the past, but it's got a continuous activity in our lives today. So it's not just a historic thing that happened 2,000 years ago, it's something that's happening today through various circumstances, different people, but the Holy Spirit's the means, the one that's doing this in your life now. And so one of the things I love about this passage of Scripture is it shows us not just the object of truth that God loves you, the cross, but the subject of reality. You're supposed to experience that today. Are you living in the experience of God's love? I'm not asking if you believe Jesus died for you. That's a historical fact. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. But are you experiencing that love that's being poured out now into your heart? Because he keeps coming with a relentless pursuit so you can experience it through the Holy Spirit. And not only that, it's an unlimited love. God loves you with an unlimited love. I don't know how many of you here are parents, but have you ever tucked a little kid in for bed sometimes and you're looking at them and you just want to pour your love out on them and so you say something like, I think there was a book written like to the moon and back. Some of you parents, some of you parents of little kids, give me a little affirmation or like you're just making this stuff up, whatever. And they say to your kids sometimes, I love you to the moon and back. And then what happens if your kids, maybe they're just competitive, my kids, but they'll say back to me, I gotta love you to Mars and back. Like, just pick planets. And we'll start, and I gotta start thinking, like, which one's further? Like, how far do you get out there? And eventually, you say, like, I love you more than the sky is blue, or I love you more than there's sand on the seashore. Now, if your parents never did that to you when you were a kid, I'm sorry. Everyone should be loved like that. But eventually, what happens is that somebody says, I love you infinity. What you're trying to, this is out, you're, I don't know, my kids are probably just trying to win, but we're trying to express like an, an inexpressible love that goes, it's an infinite love, but here's the reality, none of us can love infinity because we're finite beings. We are limited in every way, physically, by time, there was a time we didn't exist, while we're all going to live for eternity, we haven't all existed for eternity, we're created beings, we can't really love that way, but God can, and he does. And that's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that you would know the height and the depth and the length and the width of his love that surpasses knowledge. You can't know it. You can't actually wrap your mind around how much God loves you, but you can experience it. How? Romans chapter 5. He pours it into our hearts. It's an unlimited love. A love that's beyond our minds, our ability to comprehend. And that's what Paul's talking about here in this passage in Romans chapter 5. That's why he says what he does in the context in verses 6 and 7. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he talks about love that we can fathom. For one will scarcely die. It'll happen, but it's really rare, is what he's saying here. For a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Like if I asked you a question, would you consider dying for this person? There are some scenarios, even if you're not a Christian, where you'd go, maybe. And just think about it. They're like heroes that we see. So in the army, military guy jumps on a grenade to save his platoon. Doesn't have to be a Christian to do that. Any human can fathom that kind of love. A parent dying for their kids. 
We can fathom that, like push them out of the way of a car and you get hit by the car. Or I read a story this week in a book that I was reading about God's love where the author was trying to convey the idea of the gospel. And what he said was, he said, can you imagine if one of your kids, younger child, came down with a blood disease and they had a cure for the disease, but the chemo for that, that blood disease was so strong that it would kill the kid. Their bodies weren't developed enough to take it. But the doctor came to you and said, but here's what we can do. We can take the disease from their blood, put it in your blood, and then give you the cure. You'll get really sick, and eventually you're going to die. But then we can take the antigens from that, put it in the child, and the child will live. Would you do it? Some of you are nodding your head. Yeah, almost all of us as parents, like quickly, within seconds. But all of us eventually would say, yeah, I would do that for my kid. I would die for my kid. And the author of that book said, that's what God did for you. Problem, that's not what the Bible says. I get what the author is trying to do. The author was trying to convey how much God loves you, and he does love you a ton. But he was wrong, because if that was how God loved you, the next word in verse 8 would be and. What Paul says here is he says, people would think to die even for a right, they would dare for a good person, but, the word but is a contrast word. He's not connecting it to this. And that's what God did for you, would be what, what it would say next, but that's not what it says. It says, but while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Verse 10 says, while you're his enemy. So the real question is, so would you die for your enemy? And most of us, if we're honest, no. I don't, I wish they'd go away, not swipe, get them out of here. Like, but that's what we were to him. And that's the kind of love you can't fathom. That's unlimited love that he loves you with. Problem, we oftentimes resist it. Whether it's through rebellion, whether it's through religion, whether it's through our reasons, and we come up with ways to where we're like blocking God's love. Maybe an experience we had, maybe through our own morality. Why do we do it through religion? I don't know. Maybe we're control freaks and we don't want God. It's kind of scary to be in his love and that he's in control. And so we'll keep religion where it's I'm moral and I believe these things and do these things and anything that I'm going to believe, God already agrees with. And so we're good. That's not the God of the Bible. And so if we're going to let him pour his love out in our lives, it feels a little reckless to us because he's the one that's in control, not us. But it's unlimited love. I remember right before this pandemic broke out, I was in Israel with a group from our church. And there's a spot in Israel where you stand on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, if you've heard of that in the Bible, it's in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was about to ascend to the Father. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. If you stand in that spot... There's a great view of the entire city of Jerusalem. Now it's a bigger now than it was at that point, but uh, you, you look out and one of the gates you can see is the Eastern Gate. Now you can look this up on your own. There's a lot of prophecies about the Eastern Gate. They're very debated, but there's no doubt about why what's been done to it has been done to it. About 500 years ago, a Muslim leader put a cement wall on the Eastern Gate to try and block the Messiah from returning. <laughs> That's kind of funny to me as a Christian. Just so you know. Uh, let me tell you why that's funny. Uh, Jesus was in the tomb for three days. He was dead. He rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead inside the tomb, I don't know if you've ever been to church on Easter or not, he didn't go, man, how do I get out of this tomb? He defeated death. The rock was not the problem. So when Jesus then ascends to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father for about 2,000 years, I don't know exactly when he's going to come back. It could be at any moment. But when he comes back, I don't think he's going to get to Jerusalem and go, Somebody lock the door. <laughs> now granted, the wall they built is a 16-foot cement wall there. 
Maybe it was just a discouraged Christians and Jews. I don't, I don't know what the motivation for it was. But it's certainly not going to stop Jesus from coming back. Doing that is like if you were about to go to war and you're like, let's stop that tank. And we unroll some toilet paper in front of it. It's never going to make it through this. Like, not a big deal. But what some of us do is we build barriers in our lives. Like, God's not going to be able to love us. I've done too much. There's too much shame. God can't love me. You don't know what I've done, Pastor Scott. I might not. He does. And he still loves you. If you ever look another human in the eye, know that you're looking in the eye someone that God loves. There's no question about it. He loves everyone he's ever made. They're all image bearers of his. Have they received that love? Different question. Does he love them? Yes. It's an unlimited love. You're running from rebellion. You're running with reason. You're running with religion. God's love is unlimited. And you know what else? It's undeserved. God loves you with an undeserved love. In fact, if you walk through this passage, we don't have time to go through every verse, but I'll, I'll give you some highlights here. Uh, the descriptions of us are not very flattering. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, that means powerless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so you got two descriptions there, not good. Uh, verse 8, we're called sinners. Verse 10, we're called his enemies. And so we're powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of his. Huh. But my devotional book told me I'm the apple of his eye. We want that. Do you know why? It's because we're going to talk about what love is. We're not going to define it right away in this series, just so you know. We're going to talk about it for a while because it's complicated. And what many of us think that love is, is we think love is when someone else makes a lot of us and makes much of us. And so if God loves us, he must think we're pretty incredible. But then we read what the Bible says, and that's not what it says. Do you know why God loves us? It's because God is love. We're going to quote that verse quite a bit in this series. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, if you want to start memorizing it. God is love. By his character, he is love. It's who he is. It's not based on who you are, which is incredibly humbling from a human perspective, but let's try to think about it from a divine perspective for a moment. If God is love and God is eternal, he's always existed before you and I existed. Who did he love before, we exi before Adam existed? Who did God love? Let me tell you the answer, himself. Which sounds like, oh, I don't like that. That sounds like he's really self-centered. He's an egomaniac. No, no, no. Who is God? God is the Trinity. He is one. In essence, three in person, yeah, footnote, we'll talk about that later. Uh, he's one, but three, there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. By the way, all actively involved in this passage in Romans 5, God the Father sending the Son, the Son dying for your sins, the Holy Spirit pouring love into your heart. But before you and I existed, there was a love relationship with the Trinity. The Father was loving the Son, the Son was loving the Father, the Father was loving the Spirit, the Spirit was loving the Father, and it was going through this thing. And you and I are not necessary but we're invited in. And that's humbling, but you know what else it is? Secure. Because you know what else is true about God's character? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So no matter whether you're having your best day or your worst day, God loves you. And you're invited to experience his love. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And it may seem really humbling to you that you don't deserve that love, but let me tell you something else about that love. That love is personal. God loves you with a personal love. I think when Paul says here that we're sinners, he has to be thinking about what he ends up writing to his friend Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the formal, I'm the worst sinner that ever existed. What's he, what is he saying? So no matter how bad you think your sin is, the best chance you got is second place. And Paul's the worst. And he says here that we are all, while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Hmm. 
But what some of us think is that, yeah, God died for the world, but I don't know if he loves me. At least maybe he doesn't love me today. Or doesn't love, or maybe there's a lot, all these other people, but because I've resisted so long, I want to read you another popular verse in the Bible. It's in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul's writing to a church, but he doesn't talk about the church. He says here, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we oftentimes quote that and we stop there, but there's more to this verse. He says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. God loves you. And it's personal. His pursuit of you was personal. He used certain circumstances to bring you to the place that you'd be sitting in this room today or be watching online today. His pursuit of you is personal if you're a follower of Jesus, how he got you to the point where you'd bow your knee to Jesus Christ. His pursuit of you is personal and how he wants to pour his love into your heart today. I remember one time I was preaching, and at the end of the sermon, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I, I just said, hey, let's just pause and, and be silent. And that's awkward because we're not used to silence. And I said, and you just, what does the Lord want to say to your heart today? And there was a woman that was attending our church. I'll call her Susan. And uh, Susan had been attending our church. She was running from God. She was running from her marriage. She was running from her husband. She was running from God. She was not in the state. North Carolina was not the state she was living in. She started coming to our church for about two months. She was living with a family in our church, and they went to church here. And so she would come with them kind of reluctantly. And we went to pray in that moment. She said that God said, Susan, I don't just love the world. I love you. Do you know what's happening in that moment? Verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's an experience. It's not just a historical fact that happened. It's an experience that happens regularly. It can happen in this very moment for you as you learn that truth. It can happen in your prayer closet this week. It can happen as you read your Bible. It can happen as you're going to work. It can happen in a moment where you're not loving someone else and God shows you how much he loves you and he melts your heart. It can happen all the time. It's the Holy Spirit. It's dynamic taking place and it's personal to you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fifth point. It's simply who died for us and it shows us that God's love is a costly love. God loves you with a costly love. I'll read you just one more time, verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ, that's who died, Christ, that's God's son, died for us. Many of you here would die for someone you love. You'd die for your sibling, you'd die for your kids, you'd die for your parents. But would you have your kid die for someone else? Well, I give that analogy, and most of you that are parents are like, yeah, well, I'd take the, I'd die for my kids. Would you have your kid die for someone, much less your enemy? And then Jesus comes, and you see how costly it is. You see the physical torture he goes through. You see he's betrayed by a friend. But what we oftentimes don't think about is the weight that he bore on the cross. Isaiah says that he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. That was costly love. Do you know what God was doing in that moment for you? He was dying for your sins. He was paying for your sins. Because you, 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 his wrath was coming against you if you didn't have him die on your behalf. Four times in three verses in this passage it says that he died, he died, he died, he died. The preposition every time is on behalf. It's on behalf of you he was dying. It was the death you deserve to die. Do you know what God was doing in that point? He was leaving no doubt. You go back to that movie. Think about that coach saying, let's leave no doubt. Leave no. Now, you might not receive God's love. You might be a Christian who believes in God's love, but you're not experiencing God's love. But there is no doubt that God loves you. We've only looked at one verse, five truths, but one verse. 
It's all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout our lives. God loves you. There is no doubt. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to ask a question today as we go to pray. If you've been resistant or maybe you haven't been living in God's love, there could be a thousand different reasons why. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray specifically for you. And if you're, in, if you're watching online and you're just in the comments, just write, pray for me. Pray for me that I would experience God's love. If you want me to pray that for you, would you just pop your hand up? Maybe, maybe you grew up and you thought you had to earn God's love. Or maybe you've been resistant because of your sin. Or maybe you had a terrible dad and he's supposed to be a picture of the father. And when you hear God talk about his father, you can't even fathom unconditional love from a father. Undeserved love, unlimited love, pursuing love. There's no doubt, though, that he loves you that way. I see somebody raising their hand up. Anybody else want to raise their hand up? I'm going to pray. Just pop your hand up. You say it in the comments there. One of our pastors will be praying for you. Other people that are watching with you, I'm sure, will be praying for you. Let me just pray. Pray for those who put their hands up. There might be some that, that are wrestling with that. And maybe you believe that God loves you, but are you living in, experiencing God's love? Father, I pray, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 right now. We make stuff up sometimes and claim it like it's true. We've got no authority in that. But when we have your word, we know that we can claim your word as true. And I ask you to do what you say you do right now. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that you pour your love out by your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Will you do that? Will you break some hardened hearts? There are some hearts that have built up a wall, like that 16-foot wall in Jerusalem to resist you. Will you break through that and begin to pour your love into their heart? Show them how personal it is. Show them how relentless it is. Show them how passionate it is. Show them how deep and wide and long. Father, I just, I pray right now for anybody who raised their hand. Ephesians chapter 3. Anybody who said in the comments, you pray for me. I pray that, I pray scripture over them. I pray Ephesians chapter 3 that they would know the height and depth and length and width of your love that surpasses knowledge because you are able to do far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine in the church forever and ever. And I pray in this church right now that you'd pour your love into our hearts to equip us to be able to do the things we're going to talk about in the future of this series. God, will you pour your love out on us? I pray that everybody, everybody here, raise their hand or not, would know and have experienced more your love as a result of this time that we spent together in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.